Time for Swordplay. Alex, resident theologian at CNN, Don Lemon, in response to the Vatican's refusal to bless same-sex marriages, said in an interview on the religious broadcast, The View, that God does not hinder people or even judge people. Hmm. As I recall, Nick, Don had another interview quite some time ago where he asserted that when eating a particular fruit, you surely will not die. In fact, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You know, I can't remember where that interview took place. It looked tropical, though. Don sure is a clever guy. Or should I say, son of the Don. What do you Mm. think, Nick? Hmm. There you go. This is swordplay. (laughs) The place where we offer double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, an oldie but a goodie. In fact, our very first guest returns. Uh, Brother Jimmy Hinton is on the program with us. All right. Jimmy, why don't you uh, introduce yourself for our guest? I know it's been about three years since we've had you on the podcast, so tell the audience a little bit about yourself uh, and your ministry and where you're located. Sure. So I'm Jimmy Hinton. I am the preaching minister at the Somerset Church of Christ in Somerset, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been there for, oh goodness, um, 12 years now, Uh, and it is my home congregation. Uh, Back in 2011, um, I reported my dad to the police uh, whenever my youngest sister at the age of 20 disclosed that she was sexually abused by him. Uh, so that launched my work into advocacy. Uh, so I am a, a researcher in the field of child sexual abuse, and I also do training on uh, deception, and my area of expo- expertise is abuse in plain sight. It, tell us about your podcast. Yeah, so uh, my mom and I have a podcast, the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. Um, my mom and I uh, do a weekly podcast, podcast, and it is all things abuse and abuse detection. That's right. And last time you were on our show, we uh, did one part about sex abuse in the church, and then we also talked about uh, policy making for churches. And this time, um, though we'll touch on both of those subjects, we're back because you have recently released uh, a book. What did you? What did, why don't you tell us about your book? Yeah, so I released a book uh, February 16th, so uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, My book is The Devil Inside, How My Minister Father Abused um, Children in Our Home and Church for Decades and How I Finally Stopped Them. Um, And that's, uh, it's part memoir, part part theology, and part um, praxis. You know, what, how do we... How do we apply the things that we know and some of the research that I've done uh, to step in and stop abusers? Well, I've read the book, and Nick's read the book, and uh, I know that that is, from my perspective, a very needed book in the Brotherhood and uh, in the broader realm of Christendom. And I just wanted to commend you. I thought you did a great job. I thought it was a good read. Uh, it was well-written, a very accessible is what I call it. You know, it wasn't written in academies, and so yeah. I didn't need a PhD to interpret it. And uh, I wanted to have you on the uh, show. Nick and I wanted to ask you some questions about your book and about this topic. And so, uh, Nick, why don't you start us off? 
Yeah. Uh, so I guess the, the first question is, uh, why this book now, uh, Jimmy? Yeah. Um, I've been, I've been researching, uh, abusers, abusers techniques, and really, um, what it is about us that keeps us blind to abuse. Um, mm. That was really what drove me to to research and to understand abusers is because uh, as family members and as a community, we all missed it. I mean, for, for four decades, my dad was producing um, many victims, abusing them hundreds of times each, and never once did we suspect that he was abusing children. So... Mm. You know that really that really haunted me, and that began this journey. And um, I, I've been blogging about it, and been doing trainings for uh, almost as long as as, as I've been uh, in this position of having reported my dad and walking a church through the aftermath of his abuse. Uh, but I decided that it was it was finally time to kind of consolidate that information and put it into a book and give people this perspective of what it was like growing up in the home uh, with an abuser when we didn't know that he was abusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to show people how normal how normal of an upbringing people have who are family members of uh, of abusers. Hmm. In, in the book, uh, you write that at, at the time, so this was 2011. At the time, you weren't aware that ministers are mandated reporters, that they are – there's someone who legally are required to report abuse. And I just want you to you, – you affirmed it on the last time we had you on, uh, and I just want you to affirm once again for our audience that, that every, every minister is a mandated reporter, Correct. Uh, in most states, it does vary by state to state, um, but everybody is a permissive reporter. Uh, so even if even if ministers are in a state, uh, which there are very few at this point, not I don't even I couldn't tell you which states they are, but uh, even if they're not mandated reporters, all of us are permissive reporters, which mm-hmm. means we're permitted to report, and there's no penalty. There's no, you know, nobody's going to come back and say, "Why did you report this?" Uh, if there's any suspicion of abuse, um, if you're not a mandated reporter, you are permitted to report that, to make a report in good faith if you have reasonable suspicion. Hmm. It, it seems to me that there's this uh, hijacking of theology that you've mentioned before that would prevent somebody uh, from, from reporting. And so uh, how prevalent do you see that within uh, states? Because obviously there's sometimes where people don't know that they're mandated reporters, but even in a state where they're not a mandated reporter, what is this hijacking of theology that goes on that stops churches from reporting? Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, whenever we blend emo- emotions into our theology, uh, we usually get problems, you know, and that's, I talk about this with our theology of forgiveness and mm-hmm. victims, victims of all kinds of abuse are the targets of this, where they're just told, um, you know, you need to not talk about this, you need to forgive and move on. Your abuser will never know that you're forgiving him, but you need to do it anyway. And I just think, what a toxic, um, anti-biblical approach to forgiveness, where it's this emotional, you know, it's supposedly this healing balm uh, for the person who is wronged. 
And that's just not the forgiveness that I see in, in, in the scriptures. You know, when when forgiveness is, is offered, forgiveness is a gift for the per- person who owes the debt, for the person mm. who sinned. When we're forgiven by God, God's not in heaven saying, you know, for my own well-being, I need to I need to forgive you. And you may not even know that I'm forgiving you, Jimmy, um, but I'm going to do it so I can feel better about myself and release my bitterness. Hmm. That's just not a biblical form of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance, and it requires something of us who, who sinned, who wronged other people, uh, who harmed other people. And so I think that really plays into this, and we have this emotional response and this emotional connection to the people we know and the people we love, the people we respect. So when church leaders hear, and it's not just church leaders, I mean family members, it can be anybody, but when people hear allegations of abuse that are of that magnitude, they can't, they, they can't comprehend the idea that the person they know, love, and trust could have this double life. And so that they emotionally repeal, uh, appeal to uh, to their relationships, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I played golf with this guy for 20 years of my life. You know, mm. this person is a mentor. This person is my friend. I know this person. Uh, this person has been there for me when, uh, you know, when hard times hit. And that tells us nothing about the facts that are presented to us. Um, and so I think theologically, w- what we do is what I call the tipping of the scales, uh, because we forget that God's foundation is righteousness and justice. Mm. Um, and righteousness means uh, you begin with balanced scales. God always begins with balanced scales, and he doesn't tip his finger on the scale in either direction, either for or against somebody, based on relationship, based on emotions, based on who he thinks people are, or what people's potential is. Uh, God begins with all of us with balanced scales, and that is righteousness. Mm. Um, and from there, he executes justice, which is basically dishing out uh, or making a judgment, good or bad, based on what we're owed, based on our actions. And so I think, I think theologically, we really blur a lot of lines, mm-hmm. and we appeal to emotions more than we do um, factual information that's sitting in front of us. Sure. So when an abuser... Uh, cries and says, I'm sorry, and, uh, you know, I fell into it, and it'll never happen again. Is that repentance? No. No. And and I remind people of John the Baptist, too. And um, even John the Baptist's introduction of Jesus. When I ask ask churches how John the Baptist introduced Jesus, uh, 100% of the time I hear, behold the Lamb of God, well, that comes from the Gospel of John, and John says that, but he says that to Jesus. When he sees Jesus walking toward him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Um, in Matthew's account, when John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the people, he begins by saying, You brood of vipers. That's the first recorded words out of John the Baptist's mouth. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then he talks about this judgment, and he says, um, you know, his winnowing fork is already in, in his hand. The axe is, is already laid to the root of the tree. Uh, any tree that bears bad fruit, he's going to cut down and throw into the fire. 
He's going to gather the wheat into his barn, the chaff he's going to separate, and he's going to throw it into this unquenchable fire. Um, That's how John the Baptist introduced Jesus, the Son of God. So that doesn't make sense to people unless you realize the foundation of God, which is righteousness and justice. Jesus came uh, to call people to righteousness. Jesus came to root out those who destroy other people's souls willfully, intentionally. And that's what abusers do. That's what oppressors do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they know exactly what they're doing. They know that they're harming the, these children. Um, sexual predators are called predators because they prey on people. Uh, mm-hmm. They hunt them down. It's very intentional. It's very calculated. So this is anything but falling into sin and falling into temptation. So, you know, I, th- I think we just blur so many lines. And, uh, you sure. know, when the abuser says... You know, the abuser says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to do it. I just fell into temptation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what this is. And John the Baptist didn't tell people to repent. His message was bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. So and when so, abusers don't bear fruit and then forgiveness is demanded from the abused, from the victim, mm-hmm. uh, then it really puts all the burden on the victim, doesn't it? Yeah, it puts the burden back onto the victim. The victim's already carrying a heavy, heavy burden to begin with because the oppressor put it there. The oppressor took all of their responsibility and laid it on the shoulders of their victims. And now the churches turn around and they say, um, you're not welcome here. Mm. I mean, m- most of the most of the victims who's, who talk to me, uh, who've been mistreated by church leaders, they were told that they were going to be kicked out of church if they didn't forgive their abuser. Mm. And and my question to them is, well, what did those same leaders require of your abuser who actually followed through and and did these things to you? Right. And they don't don't have a context for that kind of a question because they're not used to church leaders requiring anything of the abusers. Mm Mm-hmm. Nick, do you have uh, another question here? Uh, One thing I found interesting uh, about the book, again, the book is entitled The Devil Inside – Uh, It's over 150 pages, and yet uh, not once do you mention your dad by name. I may have missed it, but I I don't recall seeing his name. It reminds me of how after a a school shooting, for example, um, people, like in the news, uh, they'll refuse to use the killer's name so as not to give him the notoriety that he wants. Um, It's an intentional thing that that's kind of done in many news outlets was was your uh not using your dad's name in the book was was that intentional it's kind of a both and um it 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 was partially intentional but i think also um subconsciously um there's just so much so much confusion and pain surrounding his name that quite honestly i I couldn't bring myself to write it down. Um, mm-hmm. And you're right. I, I did not mention his name once throughout the entire book. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I didn't sit down and, and plan that out and be like, you know, I'm, I'm intentionally not going to use his name. Right. But I just, I, I couldn't really bring myself to write it. And there's another component to that, too, that I think a lot of people don't think about. And, it, and, it's, and it's really bizarre. Um, but in a strange sense... I still have this protective nature of my dad. Like I know 
um, if I write his name, that's an automatic target for him in prison. Hmm. Um, and that's happened before, you know, where uh, um, media outlets have written parts of our story and they mention his name and they'll write, you know, like his full name, first, middle, last, and his prison ID number. Hmm. And um, he's written me from prison freaking out saying you need to get those reporters to retract that because this puts a major target on my back. Um, and while part of me says, well, I mean, you, you kind of earned that. Mm -hmm. There's another part of me that, that, that doesn't wish harm even on abusers, you know? And, and even though, even though he's an abuser, even though he's in prison for the rest of his life and he belongs there, um, I have no regrets about reporting him. Uh, I think he's exactly where he belongs. Uh, he needs to be in prison in order for children to be safe. But at the end of the day, I, you know, there's this protective part of me because if he's brutally murdered in prison, that doesn't bring any more sense of satisfaction to us or any sense of justice. You know, that's just one more component to, to the grief that our family already bears. Hmm. You know, when I went through your book, some of these questions uh, came to mind thinking about the the story and the circumstances you were put in. And you mentioned in part of the story, when you moved back to Pennsylvania, your dad lived with you for, uh, was it a year? Or was it two years? I can't remember. Uh, it, it was, let's see, we moved up in seven. Yeah, it was, so it was two years. Two years. And during that time, it sounded like in the book that maybe um, the image from your childhood that you had of him as the perfect dad uh, wasn't quite uh, what he lived out during that time with you. You know, he's very isolated in his room all the time, uh, very focused on only getting, getting certain kinds of jobs where he could have contact with children. Do you think that experience of him living with you and your wife uh, – did that prepare you, do you think, for disclosure, for receiving the um, truth about his, his double life? I do think it did, and, and I think it wasn't just his living with us, but it was a combination of that and my wife uh, pointing out to me that he's really manipulative. Mm. And at one point, uh, after we had, we had bought our house, uh, I mean, very shortly after we bought our house, so it was the first time in two years that we weren't living with him. My wife had made a comment after my dad uh, had placed a phone call to me. And it was just, you know, he, he was asking for help working on his car, putting brakes on or something like that. Mm -hmm. And my wife, my wife looked at me and she's like, your dad is so manipulative. And mm. she said, he, he's using you like crazy. And I was a little bit offended by that uh, at first. Sure. But then she pointed it out, and, and she was absolutely right, because not only uh, was I expected to work on the car, and he had a way of framing things where he wasn't really asking. He was he was manipulating me into telling me that I'm going to be working on his car, but made it seem like he was asking, um, if that makes any sense. But, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. not only would I be working on his car uh, when I was incredibly busy and didn't have the time to do it anyway, but I would pay for the for the parts too because mm -hmm. he would you know he would come back and say you know things like i'm just a i'm just a poor unemployed man that you know can't afford 
I can't afford the car parts. And if you'd be so kind as to help me out. And, and you know, I would just step in and I'd be like, yeah, of course, you know, I'll, I'll buy the brakes and I'll put them on for you. But he did that with everything. Mm. And, and my wife pointed that out. She's like, a normal person would be so ashamed to ask. And even if they did ask, they, they would actually ask. They wouldn't demand that you do it or manipulate you into doing it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. holy cow, you're right. And so I started seeing these little these little things where he was being really manipulative, uh, not just with me, but with other people. And, yeah. you know, that was kind of on my radar. And then shortly after when my sister reported to me or disclosed to me that she had been abused, it started making sense. And I was like, you know, he's he, he's really, really manipulative in a mm. nice way. Um, but you always felt that pressure and you always felt unease if you didn't help him out like you were letting him down you were disappointing him and he would let you know it Uh, that's very practical i think for our audience because it sometimes takes that person who is uh, close to you who loves you like a spouse who can see these other people in your life for the way that they actually are because as your spouse you know your wife is protective of you and so she could see these things uh from an objective standpoint that your dad was doing, which you yourself couldn't see because that's your dad. You love him. That's who you grew up with. And that's actually, I think, a practical point for the audience to remember that when you fail to see the uh, truth about a loved one, sometimes it's another loved one who's close to you that can help you see more objectively. Yeah, absolutely. You can't do this in isolation. You can't be the, uh, the one man, um, show who, who can go out and find find all the bad guys right it's like doesn't right. work that way doesn't work that way that's a very i think that time when you were married you were back in pennsylvania your dad was living with you in my perspective i see a lot of that as divine providence preparing you for um what what could possibly come to be and so uh you spoke about your sister coming to you revealing to you what your dad had done to her as a child um had you not gone into ministry, do you think your sister would have chosen to approach you with her story, with her secret? Because something does change in the way that people view you once you become a minister. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really quite strange. I know I've experienced that phenomenon, you know, people I've known my whole life. And then as soon as I'm done with, you know, Bible school and I'm actually in ministry, uh, the way people uh take what I say and, and view me, uh, changed quite quickly. And it was somewhat, somewhat jarring for me. I, you know, I couldn't tell the same jokes I used to tell, you know, I had to be really careful with what I say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So right. do you think that yeah, was part of, of your sister of, approaching you? Uh, yeah. And it's kind of an, your timing on the question is pretty interesting because we just, for the first time ever interviewed my sister yesterday for our podcast. Hmm. Um, and some of the stuff we've never talked about, um, because, it's just one of those things that's so painful. Um, it's not like we sit around, you know, family time and bring up that fateful day whenever she disclosed to me. Um, right. So, you know, literally yesterday for the first time since she came to me 10 years ago, uh, we actually talked about it. We discussed it very openly. And I asked her a, a similar question, but I said, what would have been your response had I not believed you? Or had mom not believed you, um, would you have found a way to report report this to the police? And her answer kind of surprised me. And, and she said, 
you know, something to the effect of it, you know, obviously it would have knocked me back a lot if I wasn't believed. Um, it would have been really hurtful. But she said, I would have found a way to go to the police myself and to report if you didn't. Mm. Um, and that, that was kind of interesting to me because she was so haunted by the fact that she was certain that he was abusing these little girls that he was babysitting because that's mm. when she started having memories uh, up to that point she didn't have memories of of her abuse mm-hmm. and then she saw his interactions with these little girls that he was babysitting and all of a sudden she started having flashbacks and some of those memories uh, they were cloudy but she was she was still starting to remember some of the details uh, so for her it was so important that she do something to stop other kids from experiencing the hell that she lived through, um, that she would have found a way to do that. But that's not always the case with, uh, with victims of abuse. Oftentimes, uh, when they're not believed, it just completely shuts them down, and understandably why. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I kind of talked about that, and I said, was it hard for you to come to your brother? Because I'm a male, um, I was incredibly close to my dad. I mean, we were best friends, and my sister knew that. Um, I was a preacher. My dad was a preacher. All kinds of triggering things for her as she disclosed to me. And I said, did, did that have a bearing, or did you hesitate to bring that to me? And she said no. Uh, she hmm. said even, even though I was a male, even though I was a preacher, even though I was close to dad— she said, uh, this really resonated with me, but she said, Jimmy, you had never done anything to me in your entire life to make me believe that, that you weren't a trusted person to come talk to. Hmm. And I think that shows the importance of those of us who are, in church lead- who are church leaders to be trustworthy people. Yes. Wow. <clears throat> As Alex has already noted, uh, this is a uh, it's it's a well written book and it's very accessible, uh, very uh, it's plain speak, right? Um, yeah. And and that comes across in in your assessment of uh, ministry training and seminary. You're frank in in your assessment of uh, of how they your seminary training didn't uh, equip you for how to handle abuse cases in the church. You don't dismiss or or downgrade seminary training or anything like that. You affirm the, no, the goodness sure. of your training. Sure. But you you truthfully spot the blind spots uh in in that. Uh, and so Jimmy Harding called, they want you to come take over the seminary, right? What changes would you make in order to address this blind spot? And, and do you have any recommendations for seminaries concerning ministry training as regards abuse in the church? Yeah, um, I think the first step would be to acknowledge that there is a major crisis within the church, that this is an epidemic, that the numbers are absolutely staggering. And, I mean, all we have to do is look at the Houston Chronicle article that, that came out on the Southern Baptist Church, uh, another one that came out on independent fundamental Baptist churches, um, the Catholic Church, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report of 2018, uh, where you have hundreds and hundreds of, of priests 
that were abusing thousands of victims. Um, look, look left, look right, look up, look down. Abuse is all around us, and it's in the churches of Christ, and it is an epidemic. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can tell you that from very personal experience. Um, the amount of calls, emails, messages that have come to me, and those are just people who are reaching out. Uh, think of how many are, are keeping that a secret. Uh, it's an epidemic in the churches. So the first step is to acknowledge it. Uh, mm-hmm. The second step is to say we're going to do something about it. Uh, we're not going to just talk about it. We're going we're gonna to address it, and we're going to train people going into ministry for, for how to recognize abuse and how to report abuse. Um, because it's, there's no fail-safe method. There's nothing that we can do where we're going to be like, yep, no abuse will ever happen in my church if I'm trained properly. Because mm-hmm. that just, it, it underestimates the brilliance of abusers, um, just how skilled they are. So, you know, we can minimize risk, but we're not going to eliminate it. Um, so there are going to be times when abuse has to be reported. There are going to be disclosures. It's going to happen within churches. We need to train our ministers. There needs to be a full course. At a bare minimum, there has to be a full three-hour course just on abuse dynamics, uh, the theology behind it, uh, the theology behind justice and oppression, and how we respond to it, Hmm. Um, how we nurture victims. My goodness, do churches get it wrong most of the time. They have no clue what to do when somebody's spiritually bleeding out in front of them, and that's our job. When we go into ministry, it's our job to find broken people and to minister to them um, and to protect them. And our people going into ministry don't have a clue how to do it. They don't even know that it's happening, let alone how to respond to it. So I would say um, you know, a full three-hour course needs to be developed. Uh, There needs to be a really rigorous curriculum. Um, And then the third component uh, would be praxis. You know, I lamented in my book that we weren't taught how to jump into the fire, so to speak, and how to to lead a church. We were taught how to think. We, We sat in hours and hours and hours and hours of lectures. But when it comes to praxis... You know, Jesus took his, he took his disciples really early on in his ministry and he sends them into these towns and villages with this warning and he said, I'm sending you out as lambs among the wolves. Hmm. And then he tells them what all they're going to expect. You're going to experience floggings. You're going to see father rise up against son and kill him. You're going to see son rise up against father and kill him. Uh, there are going to be beatings and all kinds of things. And, and then he says, go. And he sends them out two by two. And then they come back, they regroup, uh, he debriefs them, and then he sends them out again. And I think, like, Jesus told them more in those nine verses than than what I got in nine years of training, in undergrad and seminary level training. Hmm. Um, Wow. And again, that's, that's that's not to minimize the education that I got, because it was phenomenal. Like, they really do teach you to think at seminary, and and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, But there's so much more to ministry than being able to parse Bible verses and, you know, 
kind of figure things out on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was a, another question on, so you have one approach where, well, maybe a multi-leveled approach, right? And one level is let's get a class into uh, ministry training uh, to Bible schools, universities. Uh, I can think of plenty of three-hour classes that I didn't really need, and we could replace those, right? <laughs> we sure. Could put in yeah. something actually important like this that acknowledges the abuse that's happening, the epidemic, and how to begin to accept it for what it is and to start recognizing it. Uh, you had mentioned uh, something on your podcast one time about a database, but it was with another denomination. Um, Nick, do you remember what that was? Yeah, and and uh, this is actually a uh, one of our listeners' uh, questions uh, in regards to this. Um, uh, you've you've put the request out uh, in in to your listeners on on your podcast, Jimmy, because. Um, you want to build a database that's similar to the the Baptist database of uh, pedophiles, but this would be, of course, among us in, in churches of Christ. Yeah. And so uh, the listener, very diligent listener, not only to this podcast, but also to your podcast, um, asks, have you been successful in this endeavor? Uh, I have not, and uh, there there's one for the Baptist Church, and it's not just SBC, but um, it's it includes all Baptist churches and brands, so to speak. Um, and that database was started by friends of mine, by uh, Dominic and Megan Benninger, who live here in Pennsylvania, which actually started with me consulting with their church leaders. Uh, there was a, a case of a cover-up uh, where their pastor was, uh, was a, a convict— a sex offender who had a record and some of the people at the church knew that and they kept that hidden even from the search committee so the search committee uh, whenever they were going through the hiring process had no idea that the person that they were hiring was a sex offender hmm. and there was some of the leadership who were very much in the know so they end up hiring this guy and it just you know obviously it turned into a, an absolute train wreck a disaster and then um, I think it was uh, the U.S. Uh, USA Today did a, a really lengthy, um, huge national story on that church. Uh, that was a church that I consulted with. I got to know the Benningers through that, and um, you know through a couple of conversations that we had, and me expressing my interest for starting a database in the Churches of Christ. They stepped out and they did one for the Baptist Church. I mean, they took on Goliath. And it's very successful. And, um, you know, if you look it up, it's uh, baptistaccountability.org. Um, there are all kinds of national stories on this database. And, um, you know, it's only been up for a little over a year now. Uh, they sent the prototype to me and had me look it over before they launched it. Uh, they got a lot of good feedback from Krista Brown, who wrote the foreword to my book. Uh, she started a database and, and then... Um, kind of handed the baton to Dominic and Megan, but no, I've I've not been successful because there aren't many people who have a lot of interest in doing a database, and I I am absolutely taxed um, time wise and 
for me, it's just not, it's not a possibility for me to start something like this, to take mm-hmm. on that big of a project. Um, cause it is a massive undertaking. And so, you know, to try to convince people of the necessity of this, just to convince people that it's necessary would be a full time and a half job. Hmm. Um, so I don't really know how how to catch the attention of somebody. Maybe there will be a listener at some point that that sees the value in this, and they take they take up the the baton and actually run with it. But the Benningers, I I interviewed them on the podcast, and they said it's actually not that difficult to do. Uh, it's just a it's a time commitment. But they said as far as uh, stepping through legal, legal loopholes and all that stuff, they said it's really not that hard to do. Mm-hmm. I imagine maybe a lot of work is done on the front end of that just to kind of get things rolling. But then once it's rolling, you kind of to keep it going is maybe easier than getting it off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know we're a little over probably halfway of our interview here. I want to mention to our audience again uh, the book that you've written is called The Devil Inside, How My Minister Father Molested Kids in Our Home and Church for Decades and How I Finally Stopped Him. Uh, it's on Amazon, paperback. Uh, it's been out for a little over a month now. You can get yours on Amazon for fourteen ninety nine, And uh, it's got lots of reviews. I know I went and wrote a review, but 96% of the reviews are five-star reviews. And so this is obviously resonating well with... Um, with your audience and with with people who are wanting to learn more about this subject, Jimmy, when I was reading the book, yeah. there were a, a few times in your story that I just sort of had to stop and ponder for a second in regards to what in the world was your dad doing here? Like, what was he trying to accomplish? Like, just certain uh, points of of manipulation. So, like, there's this one moment where. You talk about how your your dad has you over because he says, I'm being investigated for this thing, and he doesn't know that you you are the one who turned him in. But he's freaking out, and he manipulates you into basically staying, keeping him company, staying the night at his apartment. And, right. Uh, and you, you were felt like, man, you just were between a, a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, your wife was like, don't do it, you know, but then your dad was saying, I need you here. And so you're pulled in these two different directions. And there's several moments in your story where you felt like that, where you felt like you were without choice. Um, do you think on that particular instance that your dad uh, would have suspected you if you hadn't agreed to stay, if you had said, no, I got to go, go be with my wife. Sorry, you know, praying for you. You know, we'll talk to, talk to you later. I don't think he would have suspected me at that point. And, and the reason is um, he was fully convinced uh, that it was young children, the, the kids that he was currently abusing. He was convinced that it was them because he had told me, uh, I think it was that same night or it was pretty close to that same night, um, that one of the victims, uh, one of the young victims had said something at church like, hey, I saw... You know, I saw Mr. John's um, private parts or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were just kind of uh, not not disclosing. It, those are called accidental disclosures, right? So that's not a disclosure where they're telling somebody because they want help. Um, young children don't know. The majority of young children don't know that what's happening to them is abuse um, because they're just too young. They don't have a context for sexual abuse or sexuality at all. 
Um, and so he, he had talked about that to me and was convinced that somebody overheard that kid and that somebody, that adult who overheard that, uh, reported him. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I think going back and, and really analyzing that, it shows me his overconfidence in thinking that he had every single person who was now in adulthood, who was his victim, under his control. That there was in his mind, there was never a chance of an adult disclosing the abuse that happened whenever they were kids, and it wow. just shows the arrogance and the confidence and and the skill at how good they are at uh, keeping their victims silent. Now the demeanor of your father changed over the next few days, though, because he was very panicked, very freaked out. But then you mentioned mm-hmm. the last time you saw him at a coffee shop, he was very calm, uh, back to his old old self, and he knew he was going to be arrested at that point. And at that meeting, he sat down and told you specifically the names of all of his victims. Yes. Do you think at that point he had figured out it was you who turned him in and he was just wanting to play mind games with you in revenge? Or, uh, you know, because he did, he did, you just say that he, it's like he did that later by leaving these bags of of evidence Mm -hmm. in his apartment for his sons to find. Like he could have gotten rid of it. He knew that his family was going to have to clean out his apartment, but he just left it all out in plain sight, almost like just to mess with people. Do you think he was just messing with you at that coffee shop that day? And do you think that was in revenge for you turning him in? Or did he still really not know at that point? I don't think that that's what he was doing. And here's why. Um, When he went to County jail, uh, I visited him once a week. So he was in county jail for almost a year before his sentencing. And during that time, I I saw, for the first time, I saw a side of abusers that, that I had no idea existed. And it was this cold callousness towards, uh, or just disregard towards victims, including his own children. Um, it didn't, he didn't mention them. He wasn't worried about his victims. He wasn't saying, my goodness, what have I done? How are they doing? You know, are, are they going to be okay? That never came up in the almost one year that I visited him in, in jail. What did come up repeatedly was this overbearing, over-the-top um, obsession with getting his discovery package released to him. And he mm-hmm. talked about, you know, these are my rights, and I looked into it, and my attorney told me that it's my right as, you know, even as an inmate, I'm allowed to see that discovery package. Um, and the discovery package has everything in it. And this is, this probably should be a full disclaimer for victims who do report. Um, I don't know how much information is redacted in those. I don't know if names are redacted. Uh, I know that when when the victims are adults, the names are not redacted. Um that discovery package had every every interview, I mean, uh, word for word, what my mom and I reported to the police was in that discovery package. And he obsessed about it. And once it was finally released to him, it was over a thousand pages of, of documents. Um, they released that discovery package to him about two weeks before his sentencing. And that's how he found out that it was uh, my mom and I who reported him. Hmm. So up to that point, he didn't know, but that's what he was obsessed with. He wanted to know how he got caught. He didn't want to know how his victims were because he Mm. never asked it. Mm. Never once did he ask me how his victims are doing. Wow. 
So yeah, when when he rattled the names off, um, you know, very shortly after Mom and I had reported them, he rattled them off because that's how they think of their victims. To them, it's just. Uh, in fact, here's what he said to me. I mean, this gives you a, an idea of the callousness of abusers' hearts. Keep in mind, some of these are his own children. Some of these victims are his own flesh and blood. And here's what he said to me in that coffee shop. I will never forget his demeanor and, and just how casual he was when he told me. He said, oh, by the way, just so that you know what you're dealing with when I get, when I get canned, here are the names of my victims. And then he just started rattling them off like, like he was talking about something that was in the newspaper or, you know, like it, it, there was no emotion attached to it whatsoever. And why did he dump all of that on you? Um, I still ask that question a lot. I, I don't, I've never asked him that question, but I asked yeah. myself cause I don't think I'd get a straightforward answer. Sure. Um, I think the answer he would give me is, well, I just wanted you to be prepared. And, you know, that was an act of compassion uh, towards towards me. Uh, I I really don't know. I think. I think when I read that, it, it seemed like an act of, of abuse and of attack, like he, he wanted to hurt you. I was like, why? Why would you put all of that on one person? Yeah, and it, it, it well it. could have been. Yeah. I mean, it well could have been. But I don't think he was. I don't think he was motivated to do it because he knew that I turned him in because he legitimately didn't know that it was me. I think I was probably the last person he would have suspected mm. that would have turned mm. him in. Sure. When you were reflecting upon the abuse that took place to all of those children, in your book you mentioned coming back uh, with a, a certain question. You would ask, you know, where were you, God? Why did you let this happen? And then the question came back to you as if from God to us, where were my people? And I think that's probably one of the most powerful moments in the book, because uh, this is where your story and theology and real life uh, church ministry all intersects at this one point. Yeah. Where were my people? And my question was, do you think that that view, that God's rulership through representation, through his representatives, do you think that best represents the biblical narrative, the battle between good and evil, and and how does that change then how we go about fixing these kinds of problems? Yeah, I mean, for me, that was, that was, that was the tipping point probably in my life. Um, it was such a, a, a transformational moment because from that point forward, I couldn't not go out and and learn everything that I could about deception and about abusers and about us and mm -hmm. and a, you know from science to theology to understanding God. I I mean, uh, f for a while it was an unhealthy obsession. Um, my wife came home from from work one day. And I was, I was literally sitting Indian style on our living room floor, and I had about 25 books um, just all around me, just laid out on the floor. Hmm. And she walked in the, in the house, and she said, why are you doing this to yourself? She said, isn't it enough that 
your whole family has been just decimated by by these allegations of abuse by your dad going to prison isn't that enough why are you subjecting yourself to all of this further pain and that question it it made me pause and i didn't really know how to answer it um and and my only answer my only answer for her the only logical answer for her was because i have to Mm -hmm. and that was driven by that question uh, that I got back from God. Where were my people? Right. And it made me realize, like, you know, victims ask us all the time, where were you, God? And it's a legitimate question. It's right. it's a 100% legitimate question. But that, that question that was volleyed back to me uh, from God, where were my people, became such a crystal clear answer to me because when you read the scriptures, you you don't see God working throughout history without his people. I mean, from creation, God is working with, and God is working through, and God is working for his people. Mm-hmm. And there's not, there's the, like, we need to wipe out the notion that we just pray for safety and then God grants it. Mm-hmm. That we just pray that starving kids in Africa will be fed and God will find a way to provide the food. Um, because that's just not reality, and that's not how God works. God works in community. He's always worked in and within community uh, from creation, from before creation. I think that's really practical. When we see something that's evil in the world, the question we should be asking is not what is God going to do about it, where is God, but the question should be where are God's people? And I think as it did for you, it will do for others. Yeah. That is the motivating question. If God's people should be in that situation to take care of evil, to meet evil face to face, then that means uh, we need to be there to do that. That's our job. Yeah. And it's very uh, practical. That's a worldview shift, actually. That's yeah. A, that's a big worldview shift, but it's biblical, I think. And it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, I, I remind people <laughs> that, like, we we get so wrapped up in our Western culture that that wraps comfort around everything. We are so addicted to comfort, literally. Um, we have anxiety. Uh, where do people turn? The only place they know to turn is where? Their family doctor. What does their family doctor do? Um, they don't send them to counseling. They don't send them... Typically, uh, they don't send them to counseling. They don't send them um, to people who can actually uh, figure out what the source of the anxiety is, panic attacks, those sorts of things. They medicate them. Um, And it's like this instant prescription that's going to calm you down and it's going to help you just kind of get by. Mm -hmm. You know, And, and we've become so accustomed to this idea that, as Christians, we we got to find comfort. So whether it's through praying to God, um, or whether it's whether it's through medication or whatever it is, and I'm not against medication. Uh, I'm over. Uh, I'm against the over prescription of medication, where we don't get to the root of the problems, and we just we just deal with the symptoms. Um, it's really exhausting to sit with people who are sitting at a level 10 
uh, emotional crisis in their life, emotional, spiritual, physical crisis to sit with people. I mean, if you sat with people who are dying, people who are dying of chronic illnesses, um, after about an hour of sitting with somebody in the same room, it's like you're so drained emotionally that you have to go find a way to replenish yourself. Now, imagine doing that all the time where you're constantly sitting with people, broken people, hurt people, people that are at a level 10 crisis whose world has burned down around them. They're the Job sitting on the ash heap mm-hmm. where their entire world has burned down around them. And, and in ministry, most people don't want to do it mm-hmm. because it's uncomfortable. It's We don't see progress. We don't see transformation, uh, at least not immediate transformation. And so it's easier to shout at the victims and say, you need to hurry up and, and move on. Like, let go of this bitterness. Just forgive and move on. Why do you keep bringing this up? And usually that's the experience for victims of abuse in the church, almost Mm. always. I mean, Mm. uh, inevitably, almost 100% of the time, that's their experience within the religious community. We're talking with with Jimmy Hinton, author of the book The Devil Inside, available on Amazon. Uh, Talking about God's people— and the church specifically, in, in your book, you lament that the church has been gentle or innocent as doves with sexual predators when they should be wise as serpents following Jesus' teaching. And then you go on to explain that to, to catch a deceiver, you almost need to fly under the radar at first mm-hmm. before cranking up your detection meter to 11 later on. And my question is, are are you then advocating that Christians engage in deception in some sense, to some degree, in order to identify sexual predators? Yeah, so my, my approach, I think, is probably really different from just about anybody, any researcher, anybody um, that I know. Um, so all the conventional wisdom, uh, all the conventional research says um, that abusers have it's what's called um, detection apprehension. So it's the the fear of getting caught um, or the likelihood of getting caught for their crimes. And so as long as uh, the the risk of getting caught is low, so in other words, if you're in a, a naive environment, which the church environment typically is ripe for uh, this high level of naivety, it's just giving people the benefit of the doubt, people come in the doors, they're going to be safe, when there's low risk, low risk of getting caught, detection apprehension, the fear of getting caught, is also super low. And um, so the the techniques for abusing, uh, they're sophisticated, but they're not overly sophisticated. Um, but confidence is incredibly high. When detection apprehension is low, confidence is through the roof because these guys just think they're invincible. And, and they have good reason to think that they're invincible. Hmm. Um, and so Dr. Anna Salter talks about, uh, in her book, Predators, she talks about how um, in those circumstances, people abusers can become grandiose. Uh, they can get so confident that they're overconfident and really cocky, and they can start making mistakes uh, because they're letting their guard down. Uh, and then the reverse of that 
is that when detection apprehension is high, that's because it's a high-risk environment. People are on alert. People are trained. They have good policies. Um, so confidence begins to go down. And when confidence goes down, they're less inclined to uh, be very brazen in their abuse because there's a high risk of getting caught or a high fear of getting caught. So her method is to increase detection apprehension. So have everybody trained really well, have people on high alert, have good policy. And her hypothesis is that in those environments, abusers are far less likely to follow through with abuse. Hmm. I, I reject that premise because I've seen how abusers work. Um, abusers accept those high-risk scenarios as a challenge. Hmm. And they'll find ways because it's what they do. They find ways to be challenged and to overcome those challenges and to, to abuse victims. And that's why I talk about the analogy of, of magicians. You know, like if you take a skilled magician who's been doing magic their whole life and you put up roadblocks to where people are on high alert and people are really watching what they're doing, are they going to stop performing magic? No. No. They're going to be like, I got to go back and I got to rewrite a, a, a trick and I got to find a way where I can up the ante. Where I can pull it off in front of this group of people that's highly likely to, to, to see a, a routine trick. And they're going to go back and they're going to figure out how to do it. Why? Because that's how their brains are wired. It's part of their DNA. It's part of their makeup. So my method um, and, and what I talk about in the book is that I go in to these environments where there's super low detection apprehension. These guys have no fear of getting caught whatsoever because they think that it's this really naive environment. And you kind of play into that. And you, I mean, in a, in a sense, maybe it is a little bit of deception, but you pretend like you don't know as much as you actually do about abuse. Um, because that's when abusers are going to let their guard down. And for me, that's what I want. I don't want an abuser who's on high alert, who's going to become more skilled because when they become more skilled and detection apprehension is high, they're going to be running circles around me and I live and breathe this stuff. Hmm. So your chances of actually catching an abuser, it, it, you, you just lessened those chances significantly. Statistically, you've lessened the chances of ever catching these guys by a large margin. So we need to wipe out this idea that, hey, if we really let them know we mean business about abuse, they're going to wander off and, you know, they might find another church. And that was something that always bothered me, too, because I heard advocates talk about this. Anna Salter talks about it in her book. She talks about deflection. You create an environment that kind of scares them off. It spooks them off. So you'll never know who the abusers were because you've not caught them. But you've kind of put up this guard and you've chased them off. And so they just go to the next vulnerable church. How can we be okay with that? Mm -hmm. Because that just means that they're producing victims at, at another place. Um, and that's assuming that we're scaring them off. I don't think we're scaring the abusers off. Right. I think that when detection apprehension is high, all that we're doing is we're making them more skilled. We're presenting a challenge and they're going to take they're going to accept that challenge and they're they're going to become more skilled. So what I do 
and I've had success with it, um, is that you just kind of play along with it because abusers are constantly testing us. They're saying things intentionally that are just pushing the boundaries. And they're seeing, you know, if anybody's going to object to it, if anybody's going to cut them off and say, dude, you're being really inappropriate right now. And so when people say inappropriate things, they're high on my radar. And now I'm observing them like crazy, but I'm also playing along with them. And I don't let them know that that I'm on high alert. So, you know, it's it's kind of that it's that theology behind it. Like, this isn't just me coming up with this and saying, hey, I'm going to experiment with this and try this out. There's a strong theology behind that. When Jesus tells his disciples to be uh, innocent as doves, but to be wise as serpents, the language that he uses really, 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 really would have resonated with Jewish people because they understood that serpent language. That serpents, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, Serpents are cunning, they're wise, they're sneaky, they're good at blending in. Um, snake charmers, there are Bible verses that talk about snake charmers that think they have these snakes charmed and they're kind of bobbing their heads along and then they strike where the snake was pretending. Mm-hmm. The snake was very wisely pretending that they were charmed by the snake charmer because they planned to attack them from the very beginning. And so Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples to be wise or, you know, pay attention, be alert, um, be vigilant. He doesn't use that language. He says to be wise like serpents. That's a very pointed, um, very black and white message where he's telling them, learn to blend in. Uh, Learn to sneak up beside these other snakes and to come alongside them. And the only way you're going to do that is... By thinking like them. Hmm. So when we do that, um, we keep detection apprehension really low, the fear of them getting caught. Uh, we keep the risk for the abuser moderate to low, and they they will inevitably start getting grandiose. They'll start saying things and doing things um, that are blatantly obvious. And that's where we can step in and we can cut them off. We can uh, we can intervene before abuse happens, uh, or if we know that abuse has happened, we can we can report them. We've now been able to identify it, and we can report them. Hmm. So this this relates to uh, something else that that you've written in the book. You just talked about uh, the uh, the abuser will instead of running for the hills, they're going to accept the challenge. Yes. And in the book, you write about how rare it is for predators to actually change. And we, I think we talked about that earlier, too, about uh, kind of the, the facade of repentance that they'll put up, but it's not true repentance. Right. And in the book, you write that, that uh, because it's so rare for predators to change, they only get smarter. And so do you think the exposure of the tactics of sex abusers – will cause these predators to redouble their efforts and, and figure out more deceptive tactics? It's kind of an interesting question because um, abusers will not learn anything from us who are not abusers. So there's nothing that I'm going to say or do that an abuser is going to be like, my goodness, why haven't I thought about that? 
Hmm. You know, now I have a, a, a new tool in my belt where I can produce victims. That's not going to happen because abusers, um, this is so much a part of their DNA and part of who they are and part of how they think that they can't stop thinking about it. Uh, just like a magician, you know, like I can go out and I can, I can, I can learn magic, right? I can go to take some course. I can drop a couple thousand dollars, uh, go through a course, sit at the feet of, of, of a well-known, well-respected magician. But do you think that I'm going to teach somebody who's been doing magic for 40 or 50 years? Do you think I'm going to teach them anything new? Most mm -hmm. likely I'm not going to teach them anything new, uh, because they're so much more advanced than I'll ever be. Right, uh, and so it is with abusers. You know, they they live and breathe this stuff, and that's why we need to wipe out this language that they just fell into sin. They just um, got wrapped up in temptation. That's not how this works, and we know that because they're so good at not getting caught. I mean, rarely do sexual predators ever get caught, ever. Yeah, one one thing that stood out from our interview that we did with you in the past was um, you talked about your dad as being an average uh, pedophile, and I yeah. I remember thinking like, dude, this guy was average, and he went undetected for decades. Yeah, it's it's un it's unreal. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean that's what people need to realize, like the level of sophistication, and and if you actually think about it, most of us don't want to sit down and think about what it actually takes to follow through with it. I'm not talking about all the gruesome stuff and, you know, like graphic details of abuse um, because I don't even want to go there. I hear enough of it um, from survivors. I know what abusers are capable of. I know a fraction of what abusers are capable of. We'll put it that way. Um, but if you actually think about what it takes to follow through and victimize somebody, a, a, a very young prepubescent child, to actually follow through with it. I'm not talking about thinking about it. I'm talking about following through with it, actually doing it, actually executing that plan to humiliate them, to abuse them in the worst possible way known to mankind, but not just to do it, um, but to, to pretend that you're a really godly person to stand at the pulpit and to preach week after week after week, to be an elder at a church and to sit and shepherd people while you're victimizing these very young prepubescent children, to maintain that facade takes an incredible degree of, of skill and sophistication. You know, this is not an accident where they just slipped up and they, you know, they let lust get the best of them and they, they messed up. And we know that because people who are in those kinds of scenarios, they get caught. I mean, all of us as kids have gotten caught doing things that we shouldn't be doing, right? Like, I got caught, uh, me and my brothers got caught trying to steal our neighbor's rabbit. <laughs> we thought it was a wild rabbit. <laughs> and, and we successfully caught this rabbit. And we were like, awesome. And we brought it home. And, you know, next thing my mom got a phone call from the neighbors saying, um... Your three sons just stole our pet rabbit. <laughs> we literally watched them steal this rabbit. Um, right? When we mess up, when we make mistakes, we get caught. Abusers don't get caught. And they're able, they're able to create, uh, commit these felony crimes against 
really innocent, really vulnerable children while they're getting the parents to eat out of the palm of their hand. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not an accident. That's not unintentional. That's not a mistake. That's not falling into sin. That is a high degree of deception and skill. Yeah, that, that's certainly pretty heavy to, to think on because that's not really something that naturally comes to someone's mind. That they, right. It's, it's uh, again, shifting in our worldview. In your book, you mentioned another helpful thing that was just at a bare minimum, something every church should have, and that's uh, a church policy regarding what do you do when abuse occurs in your church? Who's responsible for reporting? Who and what is told to the church? How victims are cared for? How to pay for counseling for for victims? uh, How to pay for consultations if allegations arise? Talk for a moment about the importance of churches having good policies, because last time you were on the show, you recommended a, a, a really helpful book that I got, I read, I used it, when starting a policy for our congregation. Talk to us a second about church policy. Yeah, so policy is important, um, if for nothing else, for the fact that abusers are really dynamic. They're not static, they're dynamic, which means um, they're adaptive. They're chameleons. They shift. They shift tactics. They shift skills. They they think on the fly. Um, They're very wise. They're very cunning. So uh, when you're going toe-to-toe with somebody who's able to adapt on the fly, who's able to look you in the eyes and tell you the biggest lie on the face of the planet and to feel no shame for that, to feel no no tinge of guilt whatsoever, um, verbal policies don't work. Saying that, well, we have some guidelines in place and, you know, it's not written down. We don't have a written policy, but, you know, people know that you're not, you know, you're not supposed to cross physical boundaries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what are the physical boundaries? Right. Name them. Right. You know, anytime that we're d- saying anything verbally, uh, there is a breakdown of communication. Um, there are things that get forgotten. There are things that get misinterpreted. A written policy lays out exactly what the boundaries are and it lays out what the consequences are for anybody who violates those boundaries. So that's the importance of a written policy is that you have in writing and you you have available to the entire congregation what the boundary violations are so that if somebody is violated in any way, they know uh, they know what boundary has been violated because it's in the policy. They know what the consequence is for the person who violated that boundary, and they know the proper uh, reporting procedure. They know who they can tell. So in our policy, for example, we have, uh, we have kind of a chain of command, so to speak, um, but we have a group of people that people can report to. If, if they even feel uncomfortable, they don't even have to identify it as abuse. It can just be that somebody makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, we have very specific people who they can go talk to. And then uh, we have laid out from there kind of a, 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 a pecking order 
and uh, I don't know what words I'm trying to use, kind of like a uh, an outcome. You know, based on on a report, uh, we have a process. Uh, we have a process for reporting back to to our elders if need be. Uh, we have a process for making a de- determination if this is a reportable incident. Um, does it cross the threshold of reasonable suspicion? Uh, do we need to report it to the police? That's all spelled out in the policy, and that's widely available to our congregation. It's so important to have a written policy because abusers have what's called uh, selective amnesia. And it's amazing when confronted with something, how they just forget, oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to rub the small of somebody's back when I hug them. I'm just a Mm. touchy-feely person. Mm. When it's in a written policy, there's no room for misinterpretation because it's written down. Right. These are the boundaries. These are the consequences for violating these boundaries. And here's how you report it. Absolutely. The book that you had mentioned before is called The Child Safeguarding Policy Guide for Churches and Ministries. It's written by uh, Basil Chavigian and Shira Berkowitz. Um, Again, that's The Child Safeguarding Policy for Churches and Ministries. And uh, one of the things that, that we found helpful in our policy was laying out safe behaviors for interacting with children. Like yeah. What's okay and what's not okay. So we have things that are okay, like sitting side by side, high fives, a side hug, pat on mm-hmm. the shoulder, encouraging words, positive reinforcement, appropriate jokes. But we have things that are not okay. Lap sitting, tossing children into the air, tickling, lingering hand extending towards the child, right? That awkward lingering yeah. hand playing with the hair, full frontal hugs, tapping a child's clothed bottom, showing a child your phone or your tablet, uh, taking pictures or videos without parents' permission, mm-hmm. holding a child without parents' permission, right? Parents should be the ones who offer to say, will you hold my child? Uh, the child should be held on the hip. The hand should be visible. These are things that I think um, give parents particularly the power to speak up and say, that's not the way we do things here because it's written down. It's on paper. Like this is our policy. Right. These are the things we look for and we say, no, we're not calling you a pedophile. We're not saying, you know, you should go to jail. We're just saying these are what we consider safe behaviors and unsafe behaviors in our congregation that we would like you to follow. Right. Yeah. And the other thing too, that's really important is this policy applies to everybody equally. There is no, there are no exceptions for um, policy. You know, right. there's nobody who can say, yeah, but, you know, our elders are allowed to give people a ride alone because, you know, they're trusted. They've kind of earned that trust. And we had this selection process as a congregation, and, and we we voted to have them be our shepherds because we trust them. A policy comes back and says, no, that doesn't matter. These rules apply equally to everybody, period. There are no exceptions to these um, to these boundaries, right? Period. Just just like abusers are dynamic too, the policy must be dynamic, right? You That's can't right. just write the policy and say I'm done. Like we got it, you know, off the checklist. What we found helpful because we're a very small, you know, church. We're a house church trying to trying to grow and to expand. Is that we we recognize and acknowledge that the policy it has to expand with us. 
as we yeah, encounter new right. scenarios, new people, as the context changes, the policy has to change with it. And so that way it always stays in our mind. It's not this thing collecting dust in the background. It's no, this is, this is something that needs to be dynamic, needs to stay updated and needs input from, from parents, right? Yeah. Cause they're the ones who are in charge of protecting their children. Yeah. And so we want the environment to be enabling for that to happen. Yeah. And so we have, uh, I think practical things that we've listed today. You talk about, we need to get this stuff into church seminaries and the Bible colleges. Um, we need to get this stuff um, into church policies. Uh, we need to get this stuff into our theology. We ask the question should be, where are God's people? Where are my people? And we need to uh, even get this stuff out there for uh, information purposes, like the database, the the credible allegations. Uh, known abusers there needs to be a database for that yeah and so you you have mentioned very practical things that need to take place if we're going to be serious about protecting children in our churches and one of the things that i've seen before that you've mentioned before is that there are often policies but they're policies that the church doesn't know about and they're policies that talk about secret covenants and accountability buddies and mm-hmm. and people who are known offenders that they have by the leadership uh, been placed with accountability people. It's like, you better not mess up in church because we got these three guys who are always watching you, Mm -hmm. but nobody in the church is going to know anything that you've ever done or all the victims you've produced because, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've repented or you've served your time or, uh, you know, I don't want, they equalize sin, right? Well, I don't want everyone to know yeah, about my yeah. sins. And so we're not going to tell anybody about you. You're not going to have to wear a scarlet letter on your, on your chest. So what happens, or what is your advice then, if you are aware of secret covenants like that, where there are known offenders at churches? Yeah, so the, the secret covenants are, uh, it's a covenant between the leadership and a registered sex offender, somebody who actually followed through with it. You know, these are not uh, high-risk people that think about children in a sexual way. These are people who spent time in prison. They're on the on the sex offender registry, and churches that have these these covenants. Uh, most church members don't even know that these covenants exist. They don't know that there are registered sex offenders sitting in the pew. The leaders know, but the church members don't know. So the first thing I would recommend is I would go to your church leaders right now, anybody who's listening to this podcast, and say, do we have any any registered sex offenders in the church? Mm-hmm. Uh, find out mm-hmm. right out of the mouth of your leaders if they know of any registered sex offenders who are sitting in the pews. The next question is um, – when were you going to inform the church? And that makes leaders really agitated usually because they're like, well, we've got this under control. You know, we have this covenant. Uh, we have accountability partners. We're keeping an eye on him so the church doesn't need to know. That ought to be the biggest red flag on the face of the planet because, first of all, a sex offender registry is a public record. And it's a felony in all 50 states for somebody to not register every six months on the sex offender registry. They have to uh, update their information every six months. It's a felony offense. It's a really serious crime when sex offenders don't update their information every six months on the registry. Well, is that the government just being 
over paranoid and just wasting tax dollars to maintain this registry? Or do these people pose a risk? Is there a purpose for the government having these sex offender registries? Um, and then the next question is, if there's a purpose for doing it, because these people actually pose a high risk of reoffending, if that's public information, if that um, sex offender registry is public, why are church leaders allowed to circumvent the law and keep that public registry hidden from the church members? Hmm. What puts them in a position? I mean, that's like, it's kind of akin to if somebody gets pulled over for speeding or reckless driving or whatever, it's like the church elders showing up and pulling out a big wad of cash out of their pocket and trying to bribe the cop to keep it quiet. I mean, it's essentially the same thing, and it just it doesn't make any sense. And parents of children in that church stand no fighting chance of keeping their kids safe if there's a, a, a culture of secrecy among the leaders, where they're given anonymity to known abusers. So, you know, I would say to people who are at churches that have these covenant agreements between leaders and sex offenders— um, I would, I would probably run. If it were me, I would run from that church. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a that's a church that's their whole leadership is built on a foundation of secrecy. And um, thinking that they can keep an eye on abusers, and that they alone can do it without the help of church members is such an arrogant position. Uh, I don't take that position, and I've, I'm an expert <laughs> on recognizing deception. And I would never step into a place and be like, yep, I, I, and I alone can handle this. I don't need anybody's help. That's insanity. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just nuts. But abusers... What they do is they they befriend people because that's what you do at church. So they become friends with, uh, magically, parents who have young children. Mm -hmm. And then they start hanging out outside of church because that's what friends do. Right. And they start going in each other's homes. And I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from people who are like, we became friends with these people and we we were good friends we were in each other's homes and we had no idea that they were registered sex offenders and then our kids were abused right that's on the church leaders for doing that that innocent blood is on their hands because that could have and should have been prevented and the very least that we can do is if you're going to let a sex offender in the church which I'm highly against highly highly against um, if they're in any church context, it ought to be adults only. If they, right. if they have an ounce of repentance in their bones, the offender is going to demand to not be around children ever again because they've proved that they can't do it without raping them. Right. Um, so if, you know, if churches have these covenant agreements, I, I just I think it's a very bad idea and I would run. Yeah, I think that's a sobering thought, too, for church leaders to uh, rethink that whole idea again. So many things that you say, to me, are worldview shifting, and especially in the way we view ministry and how ministry is supposed to be and how leaders are supposed to protect the flock. 
And it's because this topic is so mind-blowing. You just don't think that these things happen or that they happen with very much frequency. But as you say over and over again, it is an epidemic and it's just such sobering, yeah, sobering thoughts. Nick, did you have any more questions? Well, only last thing I have, uh, we're, we're again, we're talking with Jimmy Hinton, author of The Devil Inside, also uh, hosts the Speaking Out Against uh, Sex Abuse podcast. And on the podcast, uh, you co-host that with your mom, Clara, and she recently kind of interviewed you uh, about the book, mm-hmm. episode 138, by the way, uh, to our listeners. Go over there and uh, give uh, give that a listen if you haven't. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about the last time you visited your dad in prison and uh, some of the technical aspects, the techniques that uh, abusers utilize, specifically your, your dad utilized, uh, came up in that conversation. And the, your book uh, does incorporate some of that, but it is primarily a, a memoir by design. Right. Is there going to be another volume, uh, a forthcoming sequel, which will further expose, explore, explain those tactical methodologies, the calculated thinking of sex abusers? Well, I can't make any promises okay. um, because I've learned that when I make promises, um, sometimes they don't come to fruition and then, and then I feel awful. But I will tell you this, that uh, the book was designed um, exactly how it came out. You know, it's, it's mostly a memoir and I wanted to keep that feel throughout the entire book. Um, but I wanted that practical side. So it's, it's a three part book, you know, part memoir, uh, part theology and part practical application. Um, and that's on the, you know, the abuse techniques and those sorts of things. Um, it was not intended to, to be a manual, to go into depth. Right. Uh, whenever, whenever I wrote this manuscript, uh, my publisher asked me if, if I was considering doing a, a follow-up book or a series of follow-up books where they're more like a manual, where I lay out these techniques very specifically, um, give a lot of practical advice. And the answer is yes. Um, I've not started writing it, but... I mean, this is what I do. This is this is what I do when I train. I train police departments and prisons and schools and the military. Um, and churches. And churches. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's – the training is very, very deep, and it's very specific, and it's very practical. So, yeah, I would like to uh, – and I'm planning on writing a book, a follow-up book – uh, at least one that's more of a manual. Hmm. So again, that's Jimmy Hinton's book, The Devil Inside. That's on Amazon. The Child Safeguarding Policy for Churches and Ministries. That's on Amazon. It's on a paperback for twenty nine ninety nine. Uh, and then there are the practical things that we've mentioned. We need to get this stuff into our schools, our Bible schools, our universities, our seminaries. Uh, we need to get this into our church policies. Uh, we need to get this into our theology. Where are my people, God asks. Uh, we need to get this um, into, our, um, into our, our training. And so Jimmy is always putting out blogs, podcasts, and at some time in the future, written works about recognizing 
methods and techniques that abusers use to abuse in plain sight. So, Jimmy, is there anything else we can... Oh, in the database. There needs to be a database for credible allegations and known abusers to be listed in the Churches of Christ so that we can have another layer of, uh, of, of, our, of our plan to take this seriously, to keep children safe in our congregations. Jimmy, is there anything else we can do to help? How can we help in the overall picture? How can we help you in your ministry? Uh, what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just talking about it. By having this conversation, um, it, it it increases the amount of people who are listening and uh, who this may now be on their radar when it wasn't before. And uh, unfortunately for us, we uh, we had to have uh, a really tragic experience before this was on my radar. And um, it, it doesn't need to be that way. Uh, trust whenever we say that this is an epidemic, that I have yet to talk to a church, and I've spoken to dozens and dozens and dozens of churches. Uh, I have yet to visit one church where they've not experienced abuse. Hmm. And that's just that they know of. Uh, It is an epidemic. It is in every church. Uh, There are abusers. They're sitting in the pews. they may or may not be abusing victims currently, but uh, chances are pretty good. So, yeah, uh, just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, stand up to evil and say no. And it's not more complicated than that. That's pretty simple. I know, I know that people, if they want to support your podcast, you have um, ways in which you can do that that you mentioned as well on the podcast, different uh, avenues to become uh, patrons of the podcast, right? Yes. Yep. So uh, at Patreon dot com slash speaking out uh or you can go to my website jimmyhinton.org uh and you can find the link to patreon but that's how we fund our podcast uh that's how we keep equipment upgraded um and uh it's it's a fun way because through patreon instead of having sponsors uh, we have patrons of the podcast and uh, we get to know them and we do uh, for a certain tier we do a, a Q&A so we talk with our patrons once a month um, and it's just a fun way to get to know people and uh, we get incredible feedback from our patrons and uh, they've really helped to to grow the podcast and to make it better. I think that's great. Community-based, grassroots, and uh, I think I think that it's growing. I think your audience has grown quite a bit since the last time we talked to you, right? In three years. Yeah, yeah it's uh, pretty significantly, yeah. And so though we see abuse on the rise, which is discouraging and uh, saddening, we see uh, the work that you're doing, Jimmy, and I think it's more of that kind of uh, work that needs to rise up to meet evil face to face and to say, you know what, maybe we can't ever fix this uh, or completely get rid of abuse, but uh, that doesn't mean we can't slow it down. doesn't mean we can't uh, still stop some cases of abuse from happening. And that's, that's on us. That's our responsibility. We have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lingering question, um, I know I keep asking more questions. I, uh, I know we're, we're pretty deep into the podcast, but let's say just for a scenario, you're at a church and there's somebody who uh, is hands on with kids and uh, y- y- 
you you pull your kids away, right? They grab you, but uh, they grab your kid, but you're like, no, no, you, you pull your kid away or they're always like reaching their hand out to brush the hair or something like that. And there's no policy in place. So you can't be like, ah, you know, not accusing you of anything, but we don't, you know, this is our policy. We just don't do that here at this church. Let's say there's no policy in place like that. You don't have anything to fall back on. And it's very hard to say out loud to that person, like, what are you doing, right? Don't uh, mm-hmm. get, get your hands off my kid or get your hands off these kids. Like, if I was out in the street, like, that would be very easy to do. At the grocery store, that'd be very easy to do, or at least easier. But at church, it is so hard. It's so hard to do that, to, to muster up the courage and to step up and to say those things to people who are crossing boundaries. Yeah. So what is the... Uh, is the solution just to muster up the courage and say, don't do that? Or is there something more that we should be doing? Should we bring it to the attention of the leaders? Should we report them to the police? What's what's the guidance for that? Yeah. So, man, really good question. Uh, do you have half an hour? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to have you back again. Maybe there should yeah. be another another part to this. <laughs> no, I can, I can give the abridged version. Okay, okay. so as a, parent, as a parent to your kids, um, you get to say what the boundaries are period not your mother-in-law not your father-in-law not your uncle not your aunt not your cousins not uh mrs smith sitting three pews behind you nobody gets to determine the boundaries for your kids except for you ultimately Uh, and you are responsible for their protection and to keep them safe Uh, so if somebody's constantly breaking your boundaries uh, we need to get over this idea that we have to feel bad about telling them. And we don't have to be mean about it, but we can just say, look, um, I don't allow people to, to to get in my kid's personal space. Um, whether that's hugs or tussling the hair or trying to rub their shoulders, it's just not okay. So please don't do it again. Um, with that said... Uh, I would also, that person would be on, on super high alert. Again, not saying that they're an abuser. Um, some people are just, they just violate boundaries. Um, they would be on high alert. And I'd be watching that person, but I would also communicate with other parents and say, has this person ever uh, made your kid feel uncomfortable? Has your kid ever said anything privately uh, that was cause for concern? Um, and if the answer to that is yes, it's kind of a flow chart. If the answer to that is yes, then that should be documented, uh, by those parents. Um, communication is key because at the end of the day, we don't know what we don't know. If we're not communicating with other people and other people aren't communicating with us, uh, these, these incidences feel so isolated. Mm. And then we talk ourselves out of doing anything about it because we're like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a little over paranoid, or maybe I'm just being overprotective. Um, we should never assume that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should start with communication. Start communicating with other parents, especially, and just ask those questions. And no, that is not gossip. Um, communicating uh, boundary violations is not gossip. Gossip right. is when you make up information and say, you know. I think this person is, you know, and then you begin speculating. That's gossip. Um, communication is just sharing facts. This person came up and, and started stroking my daughter's hair and made my daughter feel really uncomfortable. Has he or she ever done something like that to your kids? Mm-hmm. 
so we need to open those lines of communication up and we need to document it. If people are violating boundaries, it needs to be well documented. Uh, if there's a clear pattern of somebody doing this and, and just blatantly violating these boundaries, um, then it ought to be communicated with the church leaders. And the written documentation should be submitted, and there should be a paper trail that shows that that's been submitted to the leaders. Because if there ever is an allegation of abuse, and the leaders cover that up, um, they're more prone to not cover it up if they know that there's a a, a paper trail. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that that's what it takes to do the right thing, um, but it's really important. And you need to remind the leaders, look... um, we submitted on you know April 13th of whatever year, we submitted this information to you. Um, how are you following up with it? Mm-hmm. What have you done to address this with the person who keeps violating these boundaries? And document that. Document their response. Documentation is really, really, really vital for keeping kids mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying there is parents empowering other parents through communication because if you think it's just an isolated event then you'll just sort of let it go and and try not to to think about it anymore but if you find a pattern where this happens and other people experience the same thing the parents are now a part of this uh, collaboration to that's correct verify that this is not paranoia and this is not an isolated event that this actually has happened more than once and then the parents are already together empowering each other by the time that documentation gets to the leadership. So when the leadership says, is this just you or is it just this one, you know, are you just you're are you just making trouble, right? Are you just a meddler or a troublemaker? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, because I have uh, a connection with all these other parents who have here on the documentation the same experiences and so uh, it seems that what you do is that puts a pattern before the leadership that they can't deny and you know how much churches of christ love patterns right and so well there's the pattern right there in (laughs) front of them that's right to just be like you can't deny the pattern it's there and uh so what's right what if leadership doesn't do anything about that are those boundary lines call for uh reporting to the police yeah, so the uh, reporting to the police is if um if the threshold of reasonable suspicion has been crossed where you you cross over to now you have reason, good reason, valid reason to suspect not that abuse did happen, but that abuse could be happening. That's called reasonable suspicion. It's not our job to investigate. It's not our job it wasn't my job to figure out if my dad was currently abusing those minor children or not. That wasn't my job. I had reason to suspect that based on information that was given to me by my sister, uh, that my dad was currently producing victims. Hmm. It met that threshold of reasonable suspicion, <clears throat> and I reported it. And, and that's the other thing that church members need to realize, too, is that <clears> – <throat> We're often taught in the church that leaders have this ultimate supreme authority and that you're not allowed to go to anybody unless or until you've gone to the church leaders first. And that's just Hmm. wrong. 
that is just wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not true biblically. It's not true legally. Um, and, and so if parents have reasonable suspicion, they're also permissive reporters. They may not be mandated reporters, but they're permissive reporters. And that's every single living, breathing person in that church is a permissive reporter. They can, they can make a report to the police. If the hmm. leaders refuse to do it, don't throw your hands up and say, well, there's nothing else I can do. There's a lot more you can do. Hmm. Uh, you can walk right into the police station yourself and make a report. Yeah. So I would encourage parents, um, not just parents, just any, any adult, I would encourage them uh, to make reports if there's reasonable suspicion that abuse think- could be happening. Sure. I think that documenting with other parents, uh, the corroborating, you know, suspicions, uh, that would assist with that process too. Just be like, Absolutely. Hey, I'm not this one person, uh, with a chip on my shoulder, uh, in this church drama. It's like, nope, nope. There's actually multiple parents here who have, uh, noticed the same kinds of things and that can be placed before the leadership and that can be placed before authorities. And really, uh, it sounds to me like, if the church leadership gets before them a documented uh, pattern of uh, boundary crossing, that they should report it to the police. I mean, that's that's what it seems to me that that's, yes. they, that's what they should do. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it, and it should you know that communication should be really specific. So it shouldn't be things like, well, I have a feeling that this guy, um, you know, this guy's just uh, violating boundaries. Well, that's not that's not useful information. Be very specific. Uh, this guy, right. this guy came up behind came up behind my son and started tickling him. And when my son said stop, um, he did it even more. Mm. You know, that's very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, this person took my took my or took somebody else's kid and repeatedly put this kid uh, up in his lap. Um, and when I approached this person and told him no. Uh, he laughed it off and just said, well, you know, aren't you being nosy or something like that? Like be very, very, very specific. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. More, more practical stuff. Thanks for doing overtime with me on that one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know that uh, we're, we're long into it, but again, this is, uh, I think, vital information. And uh, we could come up with 100 more questions for you, Jimmy. And that's why we appreciate your expertise and your experience and uh, your willingness to come on the podcast to to share this information. And so um, appreciate you, brother, and all the work that you do. Is there any closing uh, thoughts that you had for our audience? No, I just wanted to thank um, both you and Nick for having me on and for um, addressing this. I know it's not the most pleasant thing to talk about. but I just I appreciate you guys talking about it and uh, for reading the book, for uh, developing policies at the churches and, and really thinking through these issues. Um, that's what it's going to take. If we're going to keep our kids safe, it's what it takes. It, it's, it, and it's a long uphill battle, too, because there's no knocking it off the to-do list in one week. That's it. And so it can seem overwhelming, but right. just any step in the right direction, just baby steps, one thing at a time. Uh, you know, for me personally, you know, it took me a long time to write this policy. I was like, I felt very uncomfortable the entire time that I was writing this policy. I read through the book twice. I like, I wrote notes on it and I was like, man, why can I not write this policy? (laughs) Just, it's so hard, but little baby steps, little parts at a time, uh, bringing it up to people, you know, a little bit at a time, uh, 
helped me to get better at thinking through it. And, and I think that's, that's all you're asking people to do is just to take that next step, whatever it is, however small, to uh, be a part of the, the movement, to get this information out. Yeah, and, for and, sure. And, yeah. And so that's, that's how it's going to have to happen is you know, it's not going to happen top down. I think it's got to happen grassroots, parents, uh, individuals stepping up to the plate and doing whatever it is that they can do in their sphere of influence. And, and I think we've mentioned yep. several things in this podcast that can be a step in that direction. Yep. I completely agree. Nick, you have any final thoughts? Uh, again, uh, Jimmy, we appreciate you uh, and commend you brother, for uh, the good work that you are doing. Um, Folks, uh, if you haven't already, go get a copy of his book, The Devil Inside. Read it. Uh, If you haven't been to his podcast, go over there, listen to it. Uh, He and and his mom, Clara, they're doing great work over there. Uh, We are uh, not in competition for listeners as podcasts. We uh, encourage one another, and um, and we, we... I know we've we're we're coming up on like four hours of podcast time with uh, with Jimmy, mm-hmm. but as he said uh, multiple times already, we're just scratching the surface on this thing, and mm-hmm. so uh, we we do have our work cut out for us. And thank you, diligent listener, for hanging with us uh, throughout this episode. All right, and uh, what can our listeners do, Nick, to help the show out? If you have a question, you can text it in to 316-24-SWORD, 316-247-9673. That's the Swordplay text line. You can text questions in. We'll answer them on air. Go into the Apple Podcast Store and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. Share it on social media as well. Uh, and uh, that'll help us out uh, tremendously also. Uh, if folks want to email a question in, Alex, can they send it? Where can they send it? Send that to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And thank you again, diligent listener, for hanging in there with us, for being interested in this important topic with our special guest today, Jimmy Hinton. This has been another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on Scripture. <laughs> <laughs>